It's May 1st, 2019, and I'm in room 331 of the English Philosophy Building. It feels unlike any other day I've ever been here, because today is the day of my dissertation defense. The day I transform, officially, from being an amateur to a professional. Like the prospectus meeting, this rite of passage takes place around a conference table. A bigger, longer one this time. And again, I'm surrounded by my committee members. Four enrolling chairs, one on the screen in my laptop. Also joining us today is every English department chair to ever preside over this program in its long and venerable history all gazing down on me from their framed portraits on the wall. Thankfully, they won't be saying much. Before we dive into the defense, let me just say this. Listener, I passed it. I came, I saw, I conquered. But really, it went more like this. I came into the room, I set up the recording equipment, I was asked to leave the room and turn off the recording equipment. This time, apparently, their rights were to remain sacred. Well, it seems the only reason to ask her to leave the room is so we can speak frankly, and if we're being recorded, then there's no point in having her leave the room. I left the room for approximately nine minutes, then came back for this. Do it again. Okay, okay. Dr. Anna, we want to congratulate you. Dr. Anna! (laughs) I prefer Dr. Williams, but who's splitting hairs at a moment like this? Here I am, Dr. Anna Williams, at your service. I'm told that not all defenses go this way. Not everyone gets welcomed back into the room and declared a doctor immediately. Sometimes they leave at the beginning, come back, and sweat through a whole defense, only to leave the room again for their committees to deliberate on their fate. My being welcomed back, as Dr. Williams, seems to corroborate the account of another faculty member who told me he heard I'd passed with, quote, flying colors. I don't know about that, but I can tell you this. What happened in that meeting felt really, really good. Not at all like the sweaty, awkward, debilitatingly anxious committee meetings that had come before. This time, I was in full possession of myself. This time, I knew how to answer every question. This time, I said exactly what I wanted to say. Or almost exactly. In this final chapter of my Gothic dissertation, you'll join me on my triumphant escape from the grad school Gothic. And then, newly freed from the castle, we'll venture together into the terrifying unknown of what comes next. So here we go. After my nine minutes in the hallway, I came back in and the defense started, like the prospectus meeting, with some direction from the radio scholar. Okay, so, you know, we're going to go around the table and uh, um, we have, you know, we have things that we really, really like about the text and we also have questions about, you know, the way it was constructed, things that are kind of left out. And And although the meeting did feel good and I did pass, flying colors or no, there were still some moments of tension over the next hour and 45 minutes. It wasn't easy to do a dissertation that critiques PhD training 
to a primary audience of my own PhD trainers. Every step of the way, I was scared about how they'd react. Probably the most common question people asked me when I told them about my project was, and how does your committee feel about this? Because not only do I critique graduate training in my Gothic dissertation, my committee members are actually characters in the story, as the Victorianist pointed out. I'd like just to interject something here. A very interesting aspect of this particular work is that it's a Romanic cleft. So the people... It's a Romanic cleft. The people reading this can recognize um, the actors within it to some degree. The committee didn't seem particularly fazed by their own representations in the story, but there was some concern about other characters that they knew in real life. In particular, Laura's advisor in the chapter titled Invalidation and the Education of Emily St. Aubert. To refresh your memory, he was the academic star who enthusiastically chaired her comps committee, but then suddenly wouldn't commit to supervising her dissertation. The one she felt invalidated by who made her second-guess herself at every turn. Here's the 18th century's take on how I told that story. Um, There's a a missing perspective, to put it mildly. And I know you're not making absolute truth claims about what's going on because you're talking about people's emotional experiences. Um, But I did wonder about the ethics of circulating this edited version of what's going on within people for whom all the players are very much known figures, as well as potentially a larger uh, context. This was a scary moment for me. It felt like I was being accused of doing something unjust, when really, I was trying to do just the opposite by advocating for disempowered grad students. In the moment, I said this. I guess that the way I see it and justify it is that this is in my opinion, the voice of someone who is on the bottom of a power dynamic. And her voice deserves to be heard. And I never identified the person at the top. And I would be, um, I agree that it would be ethically unsound to be throwing this person under the bus without giving that person, you know, a right to fair trial or whatever. Um, I think that you raise a good point, and I still feel passionate about making sure that that story is heard. Her perspective deserves to be heard. Her perspective deserves to be heard. Looking back, I'm proud I was able to muster this response. But there's more I wish I had said. To be precise, there are three more things I wish I'd said. First, the missing perspective is mostly due to the fact that, in the current system, there's no official channel through which Laura could voice her experience with the powerful professor and give him a chance to respond. After PhD students complete their coursework, there are no more student evaluations, presumably because students have handpicked their committee members and have therefore willingly signed on for whatever comes next. But when departmental scarcity or the prestige economy limit PhD students' choices for advisors, that is, when they only have a handful of tenured professors to choose from, or, like Laura, they feel compelled to work with a certain star to increase their job potential, 
then the you signed up for this argument doesn't really hold water anymore. Under the current circumstances, PhD students can truly get trapped in unhealthy advising relationships with no one to turn to for safe conversations about it, except other grad students who share these incidents in a kind of whisper network. Remember Joe Livingston? Um, and so, yeah, I had heard that she was this person with very intense emotional relationships to her students that asked a lot. These whisper networks exist because they're the only outlet for PhD students to warn one another about who isn't so easy to work with. And they're also the only place PhD students can turn to for support. It happened a couple of times when I was complaining about my own advisor. I felt like she wasn't showing up for me. And then and people saying like, yeah, but you could have someone who was forcing their way into your life, like I've told them How great would it be if, as David Gublar suggested in the last chapter, there was some sort of oversight for PhD advisor-advisee relationships. Some system that allowed advisees the opportunity to provide feedback about how things are going. Maybe that feedback system could be backed up by a set of departmental standards for advisory relationships. One that grad students help craft and revisit periodically to revise. Then, if things do go south in advising relationships, the students at least have a document to point to as a sort of roadmap to help them correct course themselves. You know, kind of like a contract between the advisor and advisee. In a normal workplace, that would be a no-brainer. Now for the second thing I wish I had said. Looking back, I see that there was actually one particular word in the 18th century question that especially tripped me up. The word edited. Here it is again. I did wonder about the ethics of circulating this edited version of what's going on. Here's something that I wonder about. If I had done the opposite and presented only the professor's perspective on what happened between him and Laura, would it have occurred to the 18th centuryist, or anyone else for that matter, to call my presentation of the story edited? I can't know for sure, but it seems to me that the professor's perspective wouldn't be automatically doubted in the same way, because he's been granted the ultimate authority on what really happened or needed to happen between him and his advisee. Here's the thing, though. Laura's perspective ought to hold just as much weight as the professor's. That's just basic human respect, but also, there's a professional reason. In the several decades between when this professor got his PhD and Laura was getting hers, a major shift had occurred. Except for maybe in the most prestigious Ivy League schools, today, the vast majority of English PhD students are expected to teach a lot during their graduate programs. Because of that shift, they receive much more pedagogical training than PhD students of the past, and they have hours and hours of real, hands-on experience working with students. I had a student last semester who came into the class, he was a new freshman, and he got a C- minus on his first paper. Um, he came to my office hours, he broke down in tears and said, college is really hard for me. I don't understand what's required of me. 
and after meeting with him several times through every assignment, he was one of three or four students who earned an A in my class. And if he had a different rhetoric instructor, he would have completely slipped through the cracks. And the first class I'm teaching this semester has three students in it that are in there because their friends from my last semester course recommended me to them. I have a couple students who chose me. Lulu's outstanding teaching is a result of her personal traits, yes, but also of the gazillion hours of teacher training rhetoric instructors like her are required to take for support. So by the time we get to the point of working closely with an advisor on our dissertations, we've logged a lot of time and energy in the thoughtful study and practice of pedagogy, which was not often the case in decades past. If we feel disappointed when our own advisors seem less than up to date on best teaching practices, we do so with plenty of authority. I think what I do is important, and I think teaching is important. And if anything, this is a really good example of how not to advise and how not to teach. Um, in some ways, I felt like I was, in, when I met with him, I felt like I was having to teach him how to advise me. Um, not because I know how to advise graduate students, but because I know how I need to be advised. Looked at this way, I don't think my focus on Laura's side of the story amounts to an edited version of events at all. This is a professional critique from a hardworking and highly motivated student slash teacher who was rightfully disappointed with her advising relationship because she knew she deserved better. And third, let's say I had wanted to get her advisor's perspective on what happened between the two of them. How was I supposed to do that exactly? Just realistically, how was I supposed to approach him and say, look, your former advisee told me that this thing happened between the two of you. Care to comment? Remember, he was a highly respected tenured professor, and I was still a student in the program. Like Laura, I also feared retaliation. And like, could he even comment legally, given the restrictions on sharing student information mandated by FERPA laws? So to sum up, I think the question of whether it was unethical to not include the advisor's perspective really fails to take into account the conditions under which grad students are forced to operate. The conditions that this entire project was designed to bring to light. I think those conditions themselves account for the missing perspective. And it's up to tenured faculty, not graduate students, to change that situation. Because they alone have the power to do so. If only I could have mustered up that kind of response in the moment. I guess my courage around such conference tables still needs some fine-tuning. Which brings me to this next moment of tension. I noticed that all of the contemporary peers you discuss are female, mm -hmm. and that the only professors given voice are female, with one exception, which was David Gublar. I may have missed some, but what we're hearing are uh, female students and silenced male professors. Again, this moment at first triggered feelings of terror at the thought that I had oversimplified the very complex gender dynamics at play in the world of professional academia. But then, there was also a healthy dose of rage at the phrase, silenced male professors. As if the largely male and largely white professoriate has ever truly suffered from being silenced 
Luckily, as I gathered myself, the romanticist had my back. Hunter is all the way through. And, Timoth- and Paul Minot and Timothy Burke. Yeah, there's actually quite a lot of male voices. Hunter is a, is a, is a literary critic. He's like a specialist on the Gothic. The guy with the British accent, he's all the way through there. Okay, then I retract that absolute. Thank you, romanticist. What the 18th centuryist was suggesting was that specifically in my discussions of real-life abuse in grad school, I paint all the villains as men and all of the victims as women. I think that absolute is worth retracting too, though, because in the grad school Gothic chapter, I tell the story of Avital Renell, the feminist scholar and PhD advisor who was accused of sexually harassing and assaulting her male advisee whose transgressions were then covered up by some of the most prominent woman-identified feminist scholars in the United States. I clearly had not written a dissertation that suggested all men were bad and all women were good, or that all academic abusers were male and all victims female. My panic at the question almost made me forget. So my advice to grad students in these situations is this. Don't always believe the interpretation of your own work that you're being given, especially if it makes you feel panicky. The reader or viewer or listener may have just missed something. If you're being told you made an argument that you didn't intend to make, maybe you didn't actually make it at all. And if you did by accident, we all make mistakes and it can be fixed. And not that anyone is asking, But my advice to advisory committee members is, be like the romanticist. Keep an eye out for fouls and call them when you see them. Also, just remember to be generous and fight fair. Because at the end of the day, your advisees are ultimately still struggling for your approval. What did you find was the hardest part of writing this? The hardest part of writing it, I think, was being scared of what you all would say about it. I think that... I knew that I was making myself vulnerable. I was going out on a limb and I was critiquing the very audience that I was writing to. And um, I was worried that the spirit of my critique would be lost and that it would be interpreted in a way that cast me in a very unflattering light. (laughs) Um, And... I think that honestly that was the hardest part of writing it for me, um, was that I would be interpreted as um, being petty or insulting or bitter or um, not trying to do something positive overall with my critique. Boom. That was some real honesty and vulnerability. Exactly what I wanted to say when I wanted to say it. If I remember correctly, the Victorianist seemed surprised by my response. If that was truly the case, maybe she had assumed I was more confident and cavalier in my criticism than I really was. It was nice to remind her, and even myself, that at the end of the day, I did still care what she thought. The way the system is set up, I kind of have to. But also, I had worked with her for years, and I respected her. Still do. That moment felt good, and so did this one, when the 18th centuryist responded to my question about what it was like to serve on the committee for this project. 
I wouldn't say it's been wonderful. It's been mystifying. It's all good in the end. Um, but again, my perception of my role in this has been my perception of what my role is for all graduate students, which is one of deep care and trying to provide professional guidance. And it has forced me to reflect on not only my own rhetoric, but also the institutional context more so in which my comments are pervade. Um, I would say it uh, has opened my eyes to some of the aspects of that experience in ways that I might not have apprehended before. I think I've said to you before, I found many of your uh, critiques or points to be um, compelling, if not persuasive. And I think I would stand by that. A dissertation should provoke critical pushback. It should provoke uh, disagreement. Uh, so disagreement is not the same thing as finding it to have no value or no merit. Um, and I, I hope you hear that. I do. So there you have it. Dissertation conquered. Degree accomplished. Grad school gothic castle escaped in adrenaline-pumping, hair-raising, deeply satisfying manner. When the meeting ended, people began clearing out, offering their congratulations and asking me to send them this very epilogue once it was completed, as they dashed out of the room to attend other defenses around other conference tables in the EPB. As I gathered up my things and made my way out, I opened the door to find a familiar face, a dear friend from my cohort, offering me a handmade tiara she'd fashioned from one of her daughter's baby barrettes with three handmade letters, PhD, taped to the top. It was a reminder that for me, this was the end of a long personal journey toward a certain kind of enlightenment. Not necessarily my supposed expertise in Gothic fiction, but really more of a belief in myself and my ability to prove my worth against dark and mystified forces. As I embraced my friend, I felt six years of worry and struggle dissipate into the dark hallway. I packed up the recording equipment, gathered my things, and together we made our way down the stairs and out of the ugliest building in Iowa for what would be one of my last times. We passed through the dreaded parking lot, lot is full now. Please wait. and paused to snap pictures in front of the campus redbud trees, just blooming in the late Midwest spring. Then it was up the riverbank, past the university's iconic gold dome, and on to the bar where my husband and more friends awaited for celebratory drinks. The grad school gothic having now receded below the horizon behind me. A new, perhaps even more terrifying apparition appeared on the road ahead. What now? I will be a failure if I leave. It's going to change the whole trajectory of your life. I spent a really, a lot longer than I needed to chasing something that I probably wasn't ever going to get. I think people, especially outside of academia, underestimate what a psychological hold it has on you. These are the voices of what I've come to call the academic quit literati. We'll get to them in a minute. But for now, let me just say this. Leaving academia is hard, but that's what I did. I left. 
Maybe you saw this coming. I have been framing my PhD quest as an escape after all. But before we get to the leaving, let me tell you about the time I tried to stay. After so many years of training for a degree that everyone thinks is good for exactly one thing, being a professor, I decided I'd give it a go on the academic job market, which by the way is notoriously competitive and soul-crushing. But nevertheless, in the fall semester of my final year, as I finished up this podcast, I joined the thousands of other graduating English PhDs as we heaped together the 10 million documents required for an academic job application. I painstakingly assembled my CV. I wrote, tore apart, and rewrote my two-page cover letter describing my past, present, and future academic career. I piled together my teaching portfolio, waxing poetic in my statement of philosophy, collecting and collating student evaluations, arranging faculty visits to my classroom so they too could wax poetic in their letters of recommendation. I paid for an online service to collect and deliver those letters of recommendation, ensuring future employers that I had never laid eyes on the letters myself, so therefore they must be true reflections of my worth. I gave myself headaches, trying to boil down my dissertation into a two-page abstract, pulled bullshit out of the air to construct a research statement about the career I planned to build out of that still-unfinished dissertation. Each of those documents, by the way, was then tailored to fit each specific job ad I was answering, slyly working in the mission statement of the department and school who had placed it. If this sounds like a bloated and bureaucratic application process, that's because it is. It's designed to help hiring committees narrow down candidates from the vast ocean who apply for each job. On top of the laundry list of documents that they ask for, academic job ads also often call for intensely specialized areas of expertise to fill gaps in their departments. So if the average candidate wants to apply, it takes some serious contortion to present themselves as a good fit. Besides needing to have a very specific constellation of interests and expertise, if a job candidate has any preferences about where they want to live and work, perhaps a desire to be close to family or to accommodate a partner's career, then the options become even more narrow. Being unwilling to contort myself too much, I applied for only 20 jobs, a modest number compared to most. Part of me was hoping that this whole first podcast dissertation thing would make me stand out in the crowd. Not so, really. And the sad thing is, in trying to convince those 20 committees that I was the perfect fit for the position they were advertising, I often ended up convincing myself that I was the perfect fit that this job was the one and only key to my future happiness. And so, despite all of my skepticism and jadedness, it was still crushing when in the end, I only got two interviews. One at a very prestigious school for a job that fit my training very well, but that nonetheless went very poorly. Thank you, imposter syndrome. And one at my own institution for a temporary visiting assistant professorship 
that had little to do with my training, but that nonetheless went very well. It was a life raft thrown out by a benevolent department to keep my CV afloat for a year so I could try my hand at the academic job market again. But in the end, after being offered the job, I turned it down, opting instead for the rocky road out. But I knew plenty of others had braved it before me, so I decided to seek them out. I think I felt the need to semi-self-destructively set off a bomb so that there's like no turning back. <laughs> this is Dr. Jessica Collier, a PhD in 19th century American literature who graduated from the University of California, Irvine, and then, like me, made a break for it. On her way out, the bomb she set off was an article titled jailbreaking my academic career. I think one of the things that's really hard about leaving academia is that by the time you have finished a PhD, your entire life is there. It's your friends. It's in most cases, the only professional connections you have. When you leave, it's very tempting to keep it a secret, right? Like you're secretly sort of plotting your escape from the Gothic castle. And I kind of was tired of sneaking around and feeling ashamed of this kind of path that I was taking. And so I wanted to say something publicly. Say something publicly she did, essentially comparing academia to a jail that she had to break free from. As she explained in our interview, she came to see academia as a totalizing culture that consumed every aspect of her life giving her little room to exist outside of her academic persona. It's like everything is con constrained, everything is restricted. You can't operate outside of the sort of total culture of this space. Um, and I think, you know, that became the part of academia for me that was really, really tough. My research interests like kind of aligned with exploring these defiant cultural moments that worked against a total culture. and. It, it felt really odd to be, you know, researching that and writing about it and then kind of operating myself inside of this total culture that didn't really allow for any flexibility. Even though this is the case, that academia is rigid and exhausting and all-consuming, Jessica still felt the need to blow up the bridge behind her so she didn't feel tempted to creep back across it. Because part of the way academia is totalizing is that it institutionalizes you, making it difficult to exist anywhere else. Jessica's jailbreaking article is one very good example of quitlit, a genre of writing in which embittered former academics make public declarations about the reasons they're leaving the ivory tower. It's gained surprising popularity in the last 10 or 15 years. But then again, Maybe it's not so surprising, since the decision to leave often comes with a potent mixture of emotions. Resolve, anger, sadness, nostalgia, bitterness, that don't have a formal outlet anywhere else. In academia, there are no exit interviews. No formal system to air your grievances into, or to pleadingly tell the story of your heroic, back-breaking efforts that were brutally, 
tragically never quite enough. In that way, the academic quit literati have made the road from academia a little less rocky by sharing how they've coped with leaving a place, a culture, a profession that's taken a little part of their souls, even if they knew it wasn't right. I just began to like deeply suspect that there could be a life in which I wasn't miserable all the time. And what felt complicated about that is that, in theory, I loved, I, I liked teaching, I loved writing. Very much my identity was embedded in the life of the university. And yet. This is Sabina McAllister another escapee who earned her PhD in political science from York University and then went on to found something called the Leaving Academia Project, which included a blog, a career counseling service, and, guess what, a podcast. Welcome to Leaving Academia, the podcast about former academics finding successful post-academic careers. Sabina decided to pursue her PhD in poli-sci, she says, because she grew up in a very politically-minded family. They would listen to the six o'clock news together every night during dinner. By the time she went to college, she had become a little bit of an activist, she says. And her experience in undergrad political science classes made her feel like part of a community, which unfortunately she found was no longer the case when she started grad school. Sabina says that the work of getting her PhD felt lonely, even depressing and also so highly specialized that her passion for the subject was eventually sucked right out of her. By the time she hit the dissertation stage, she had, quote, just enough gas left in the tank to finish and get out. I knew that there really could be a life beyond academia, and I really wanted to try to normalize that and to shine a spotlight on it, because I knew what it was like to be somebody who was like, I will be a failure if I leave, <laughs> which is like, hilarious like I did have a committee member who I'm pretty sure uh, like I think he looked down his nose a little bit at my decision and so okay they can be off in the corner being like well isn't she a failure or a loser you know what let them fill their boots you have to make your decisions based on what you want if like me you're wondering what on earth fill your boots means Don't worry, I've got you. Like, fill your boots with all your feelings of hatred towards me that you want. Like, it's what you think of me is not my business, as they say. But what she says about the invisible, internal work that it takes to leave the academy? Yes. For some, it can take years of languishing in the adjunct pool to finally complete that internal work and decide to leave, which is exactly what happened to Rick Rader. Rick is another PhD this time in classics, who left the academy and wrote about it. After graduating from Ohio State, Rick hopped all across the country chasing temporary academic positions before finally giving up and landing happily instead at a private high school. It took about four years, four to five years. And I think back now, I'm like, dang, like I do regret spending seven years afterwards chasing an ever-receding fantastical position. I don't know if the the right word is denial, but I really just had a hard time accepting that I wasn't going to be competitive with 
you know, with the PhDs coming out of the really top tier programs. The last year I was teaching in the university, that was 2013 to 2014, I had one interview. I had a book manuscript under contract. I had articles in print. I had a mile long list of classes that I had taught from undergraduate to graduate seminar. I had one interview. And that's when it was like, you know what? This just isn't happening for me. For many, there's this grieving process that comes along with the decision to leave academia. But at least for Jessica, Sabina, and Rick, going through that process and coming out the other side made them stronger. As individuals and as professionals, I would argue. All three of them fell in love with their academic subjects early. Or maybe not quite their academic subjects, but the ways of thinking that are most often channeled through those subjects in our system of education. I mean, I think like a lot of people, I grew up as one of those students who, you know, was the best and the brightest in the class and sort of had an inextinguishable passion for reading and writing. I mean, I think for a lot of people, you end up going in an academic path because you're good at it. And because there's so many signs of external validation that you get along the way. I decided at the age of 17 that I wanted to be a PhD in classics. My Latin teacher at the time said, hey, you know, there's this summer program. As you can imagine, it was a total nerd fest, uh, but it was a really, really magical and transformative experience for me. And when they realized they wouldn't find academic careers that would allow them to continue practicing those ways of thinking that they loved, they got creative and found other places where their PhD skills would be valuable. First up, Jessica. I was working out of a coffee shop in San Francisco, like working on my dissertation every day. And I had been meeting people around who kind of would always want to know, what's your story? And when they found out what I did, they were kind of like, oh, so you understand words. Like maybe you could help me with these words. And that's sort of how I started getting freelance work. Her understanding of words got her all the way from those first freelance gigs to her current position as the CEO of Spot, an app that makes it easier and safer for people to report workplace abuse. As for Sabina? So I worked as a policy analyst for a little while, and then I brought a lot of really critical, analytical thinking into my role, and I also learned a lot very quickly about the healthcare system, and like I kind of just kept on getting promoted in that job. She's now, very happily, the manager of policy and strategy at the College of Registered Psychotherapists of Ontario. And Rick? Like I said, he found his way into teaching classics at a private high school in Nashville. It was such a, it was like an overwhelmingly positive experience for me. Um, and it was just such a breath of fresh air. There really needs to be a lot more work done to articulate the ways that PhD training is also really good preparation for working in all kinds of industries outside of academia. In his book, The Grad School Mess, Leonard Casuto talks about PhD's ability to synthesize large amounts of information, that there are so many other real tangible skills besides that. Things like writing and editing, sure, but also complex thinking, the ability to recognize and parse out complicated problems with multiple issues intersecting at once, and then, given all the teaching experience, present solutions clearly and precisely. 
And again, if they underwent all that pedagogical training and logged all those hours leading classrooms, humanities PhDs are likely to be very good at breaking down tasks, organizing and managing teams, building workflows, and creating an open, healthy culture of communication, despite the widespread notion that they're not so good at collaborating with others. Because, as Jessica noted during our conversation, in the current state of things, PhDs can cause a lot of eye-rolling out in the so-called real world. There's a notion that they're out of touch. I, you know, I get intro emails from, from people who are sort of feeling out their transition that are easily 2,000 words long. And I, you know, I've seen PhDs like working really hard to kind of frame their experience as directly applicable to you know, whatever kind of industry role it is that they're looking for. And I think what would be a lot more effective is people need to be willing to say, I have no direct industry experience. Here are the things that I have done that I think transfer really well. Um, I have put them into a format that is easily digestible and quite visual and not text heavy. So even after one escapes from the grad school gothic, they can still be haunted by the less-than-desirable traits of academia. At the end of all of this, after hearing how their PhDs were disappointing in some ways, didn't lead to a clear career path, and haunted them emotionally and professionally, I asked these members of the Quit Literati, Jessica, Rick, Sabina, if they had come to regret getting a PhD in the first place. Oh no, no. 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 I don't personally regret getting a PhD. I just, I wouldn't be the person who I am. Like, I wouldn't have the brain that I have. I wouldn't think the way that I think. Even though I don't use my PhD in a very super direct way, like, like it was the right thing for me to do at that time in my life. My only regret is that I spent so many years post-PhD, moving across the country multiple times, taking one-year jobs, thinking that it was going to result in a good permanent position someplace. It's a little bit of an existential question. It's like asking me, like, do you regret being the person you are? I can't regret any of the decisions that I made in my life because they all led me up to where I am now. And where I am now is like, pretty great. As for me, where I am now is the proverbial big city, New York. I opted for the rocky, unsteady road from the grad school gothic to here, because I was convinced my degree is really good for this whole podcasting thing. And New York seemed like the land of opportunity when it came to finding a job in podcasting. And by job, I mean just that. I envisioned myself landing in an office somewhere, working nine to five. Though of course, those hours would be flexible because said office would be very relaxed and progressive. I'd be surrounded by brilliant and quirky colleagues who ran out for kale salads together at lunchtime each day. Side by side in our eccentrically decorated open air cubicles, We'd spend hours editing compelling and meaningful audio stories together, periodically removing our headphones to bounce ideas off one another, and then walk down the hall for energetic editorial meetings. 
When the workday was over, I imagined we'd debrief over bespoke cocktails at happy hour. Then I'd go home to my tiny but stylish apartment and whip up dinner from the New York Times cooking column. Surrounded by my husband and two cats, I'd drift contentedly off to sleep each night, wrapped in the security of my 401k, my health benefits, my paid paternal leave. Listener, this dream was delusional. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, which hit New York just six months after I moved here and has now made any dream of office conviviality seem out of reach. Not to mention the 401k. I wish I had a happier ending for you. But after all, this is a gothic novel. At the end of Udolfo, Emily remains trapped in eternal deference to patronizing authority figures. In Villette, Lucy Snow hints cryptically that her long-awaited fiancé died in a shipwreck, leaving her to live out her days in isolation and mourning. And of course, Victor Frankenstein dies in the Arctic, aboard Robert Walton's ship, his creature returning to curse his dead body one last time before going off to end his own life, alone in the frozen wasteland. Like the doomed protagonists who came before me, Maybe I've escaped my castle, only to remain trapped in the larger system that built it. In my case, an economy that seems to assign very little value to creative and intellectual work. My escape to the podcasting world seems to have led me straight into the gig economy, where the jobs are always temporary, the benefits are non-existent, and the workers are trapped in a never-ending search for the next paid project my own personal version of imposter syndrome hell. All of which is to say, that nine to five job I was envisioning seems just as rare as a tenure track job in academia. It looks as though the podcasting world has its own version of adjunctification. Only here, they call it something else, freelancing. Being a free lance, an independent sword for hire. A mercenary knight, roving medieval Europe with no principles to fight for, just a hunger for battle. Because after all, that's what the term freelance really means. And surprise, surprise, it refers to the very age in which most Gothic novels took place. The Dark Ages. So in the end, do I regret getting a PhD? I don't. It made my lance sharp, but my principles sharper. And I won't give up that easy in the fight to find value for myself and others like me. My Gothic Dissertation was written, reported, and produced by me, Anna Williams. To hear episodes, read transcripts, and see footnotes, head over to mygothicdissertation.com. You can subscribe to My Gothic Dissertation wherever you get your podcasts, including Lyceum, an exciting new platform that brings together the most inspiring ideas, discussions, and people in the world's first audio learning community. 
Lyceum offers a unique online forum. So if you'd like to engage directly with me about what you've heard, download the Lyceum app, search for My Gothic Dissertation, and leave me a comment in the discussion room. The theme song for My Gothic Dissertation is Can't Stop Running, written and performed by Adam Ben Ezra. A big thanks to him for allowing me to use it. The website and logo for My Gothic Dissertation were designed by Brett Forsyth of Yellowhammer Creative. Consultants were Ginger Marshall, Michael Garofalo, and of course my dissertation committee, who lifted the gate and allowed me to do this project in the first place. Thanks to everyone who let me interview them. They are Jessica Collier, Sabina McAllister, Rick Rader, Adam Capitanio, Chiara Solprizio, Sherry Treffin, Kevin Birmingham, Deirdre Egan, Virginia Crisco, Meredith Elzey, Isabel Scockney, Ellen Ledoux, Elizabeth Allen, Judith Pascoe, Susan Mingi, David Gublar, Paul Minot, Timothy Burke, Joe Livingston, Kristen Nepp, Janelle Schwartz, Matt Barton, Renee Ledoux, Amy Paulus, Kathy Magarel, Annie Sand, Jenny Benoit, and my peers Laura, Lydia, Angela, Lulu, Caitlin, Jamie, Kathleen, Pedro, Philip, Maheen, Jen, Jillian, Anne-Marie, Margaret, Tori, Maddie, Ian, Brady, Rachel, and Carl. Finally, I'd like to give a shout out to the Iowa Public Radio talk show team. They are Katherine Perkins, Charity Nebbe, Ben Kiefer, Lindsay Moon, Emily Woodbury, Claire Roth, and Dennis Reese. Thanks for listening.